Hey, welcome to the Violet Nights podcast. I'm Nan Napoleon. And I'm Alex Williams, and we work at South Bank Centre, which is where we are right now. Thanks for listening in. Violet Nights is a platform where we take online conversations offline. Our guests are at the core of conversations that shape our generation. This month, we're unpacking narratives around climate emergency. We discuss environmental justice and look at how to build a more representative movement for change. The panellists include Minnie Rahman, who works in public affairs for the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, and Fazana Khan from Voices That Shake, an organisation working with young people developing creative responses to climate justice. Plus, we have Rosamond Adu Kissy Deborah, founder of the Ella Roberta Family Foundation and a public health consultant in asthma education. And finally, we have writer and educator Judy Orson, who co wrote and edited Rise Up, the murky story so far with Stormzy. This event is hosted by BBC journalist Shivani Darvey. Uh, so I thought to kick off, we'd start with sort of just defining the terms that we're going to be using all evening. So climate crisis, climate justice, climate emergency. What's the difference between all those words and what do they mean to you? Let's start with Minnie. Um, I think the word like climate crisis has sort of come into like public consciousness really recently. And I think what people mean by that is that we're sort of at this tipping point where we've got less than 12 years to sort of stop the track of climate change as as it's currently going and sort of make sure that we're not going to get to a point where we completely can't save the human population or the planet in in any form. Um, So I think climate crisis and climate emergency are sort of interchangeable, but I think climate emergency is used in a more popular way by groups like Extinction Rebellion, but I think they essentially do mean the same thing. And then for me, climate justice is about making sure that all the people who are truly going to be affected by the climate crisis and are being affected right now are at the centre of our decision-making processes and how we design policy and solutions to the climate crisis. Are we all agreed? What do you think? I think I'm really mindful to use words like emergency and crisis and who gets to use them because so often those terms are used to kind of bypass doing systemic, a deep overhaul of change that we really need, which isn't just going to be like just transition in an industry. It's going to be a psyche level of how we live and who we think we are and what's possible. And Rosamond, like working with governments and bodies like the World Health Organization, how do you find that those words like interact with the reactions you get? Yeah, it's really interesting. I've I have never used those words, which is interesting. Climate, what, what do you say? Public health emergency, mm-hmm. um, because my role is very specific. I leave the climate to those who deal with the far bigger issues. My specialism is hair pollution, and those of you who don't know me, my daughter Ella. Roberta, she had one of the worst cases of asthma ever recorded in this country, and she died um, seven years ago now. So my thing is specifically about air pollution and the impact that is having on health. It is part of the climate crisis, but over the last seven years, I've specialised more in that, in understanding why so many young people um, in the capital and in all urban cities across the United Kingdom are becoming ill. I always have to be mindful what I say in these public places because I don't want anything to bite me when I get into the courts and I'm going to court back in court in a couple of months' time. But what I want is not only justice for her, but justice for everybody else. 
that we live in a world that 7 million people die each year from air pollution. Until date, that has not been on any death certificate yet. The way that the climate crisis or climate change justice issues are represented in the media and represented on like a government policy level tends to be whitewashed. Mm-hmm. You know, talk about the elephant in the room. Um, so everyone here on this panel has probably had some sort of experience of climate racism, climate change related racism. So what is it for people who've never experienced it or don't know what it is and why? The environmental movement doesn't see things like migration as part of the climate crisis mm-hmm. and being the same struggle. And I mean, we were talking about Heathrow Third Runway. So obviously we've had this big campaign against the third runway for many years now. You started with Plain Stupid about six, seven years ago. And there's a huge campaign. And yet we absolutely never hear the environmental movement talk about the fact that in the path of the third runway, there are two detention centres. Now, detention centres represent the epitome of everything that's wrong with our society. They're cruel. They're inhumane. Um, they're most of the people in there. They're obviously all migrants. Most of them are working class, mental health crises, torture survivors, victims of trafficking, uh, refugees often, and normal people who are just trying to get on with their lives in the UK. And what you never hear environmental activists talk about is the fact that to build that third runway, they will knock down those two detention centres and build a super detention centre. And you have a very tiny campaign group called End Heathrow Immigration Detention that has been desperate for money and resource and activists to help them oppose this giant detention centre from like you know, writing in the planning permission stage and saying we don't want it built and the local community opposing it. And the environmental movement has so much money and resource and not one offer of support to that organisation that is run by three volunteers trying to stop that from happening. And I think the levels of, of racism that occur within the environmental movement, there, that, you know, there's that example, but there's also the fact that the environmental movement has consistently perpetuated these notions about population control and who is responsible for the climate crisis and talking about, oh, you know, we've, we've got to stop migrants from coming here. They've sort of used climate refugees as a scare tactic Um, You know, we've got to resolve the climate crisis because we don't want all of those refugees coming here and, you know, not getting involved in those conversations about borders and how those work. And, you know, you've got people, the main spokesperson from Extinction Rebellion writing articles about how migrants shouldn't be allowed into the UK. and, And that's common knowledge. And the environmental movement never connects itself with other social justice movements, despite the fact that the majority and the root causes of those problems are capitalism and colonialism and the things that you need to deconstruct in order to challenge the climate crisis are the same things that are causing problems for migrants. Like Minnie, I talk about my work as community and youth work, but I actually have been working in climate and environmental justice racism for a long time. Uh, there's an organization called Platform London, which is one of the first organizations to actually in the UK talk about environmental racism. Um, and what they do model is great allyship. Um, and one of the things that Platform launched was this project called Voices That Shake. And for me, um, within Voices That Shake, even though we were talking about climate justice, we never talked about it in terms of just transition or energy democracy or renewables. We talked about it in terms of food apartheid in our communities in ends where you've got 
gentrification happening you can't afford these organic shops that are emerging but every other sh shop is a pfc and connecting it to the rise of um, youth violence and relating that to generational trauma where we come from communities that have had experienced legacies of violence subjected to our bodies and that generational trauma lives in our children lives in our bodies and we have had no mechanism or infrastructure to support that and then also looking at issues of hostile design a lack of public infrastructure lack of public services a breakdown of society and you'll see it happen just before those areas get regenerated and that happened in Hackney that's happening in Tower Hamlets so really understanding that racialized and also class-based violence that takes place and a thing that I would also like to connect as part of that which is racialized violence is that black and brown communities it's not that we're just experiencing poor health as a result of it because of the traumas and the generational experiences we have we have had our nervous systems, our immune systems are more susceptible. So our ability to be more resilient against the hostile designed environments is less possible. So again, it comes back to this issue of public health. And writing about climate, because you do teach people how to write about climate and talk about climate change. Um, yeah. how, how do those words sort of affect the way that you teach people how to discuss what's going on? It's um, more so the know-how. Like, um, I see this conversation about, like, climate crisis at a very, like, micro and macro level, where, um, obviously, at, like, the individual level of people, there's such a lack of knowledge and awareness about climate change. And I um, decided to join the course and try to help people to write to understand, because a lot of my writing in the past has been, like, writing from the dark, whether it's um, writing on mental health issues and I don't necessarily have the access to all of the resources but the resources available to me I would use and um, this is the same with my class I've been basically presenting them with information prompting them to think about climate change and how it affects them individually whether it is like um through a family member and their own illnesses or conceiving whether they want to bring children into this world but that's also an issue like at a big kind of macro level and um, yeah, just being able to communicate that understanding of climate change to a point where we can have a conversation about it and identify our own specific issues. Everything that we are talking about is political. Like these are all political decisions. And I think Extinction Rebellion has really undermined a lot of that work by saying it's not political it's everyone just needs to take action and what they have essentially forgotten about is that they are living in a political system that has created this crisis mm -hmm. like it's not apart from it it is the reason that we are in this situation and so I think for me Extinction Rebellion's sort of they've got this model right it's direct action it's cause as much chaos as you can and I think there's like a real problem with some of the narrative around that because there's not always a recognition that not everyone can do that and I think that's like part of the most of the problem that people of colour have with it is you know lots of people of colour particularly black people cannot engage in that kind of protest in the same way and there's no concept of like safety and how that might operate and I, and I feel like Extinction Rebellion hasn't done enough to sort of recognise okay there are groups like for example undocumented migrants they absolutely cannot be in that space and yet huge numbers of them may have come from communities which are affected by the climate crisis and that might be why they've moved and 
you know, recognizing that they can't do that for everyone and then working out how they can support and share space with those other groups. I think, you know, Extinction Rebellion has a role. We all have a role mm. to play. You can't control everyone's role in it. And we shouldn't, as a movement, try to have one mm. cohesive thing that we're all doing because that's just not how change occurs you know that's a fundamental misunderstanding of of the movement and how movements operate and how change happens but I think the problem is that Extinction Rebellion take up a lot of space and energy and time so encouraging sort of you know local Extinction Rebellion groups to think about how they can work with the things in their communities and how they can work outside of these direct actions and listen to what the solutions are because again extinction rebellion does not have a clear or radical solution to the climate crisis their model is based essentially on just decision makers just parliament at this current moment and yes they got a climate emergency declared in parliament but where are the real solutions and what i would really encourage you to do is look at the work of the sort of youth strikers because they also do direct action they also do mass mobilization that's a similar operation but their narrative is completely different and it you know it's it's a narrative for example so I work for an organization which which represents migrants we we get status for migrants and we campaign and do policy around that we would never get involved in an extinction rebellion protest yet we went to the youth strikes we got 28 other migrants rights organizations to go we had undocumented people there because we felt like they had thought about it and were providing a safe space for those people. And, you know, they think more cohesively about how they can bring other movements on the journey because it is a journey that we're all going on. Yeah. I would really echo that there always has to be a multi-layered strategy. But what I'm curious is about is this notions of like reforming things that have consistently proved to adopt a lazy narrative where more radical work is being done. Why aren't more folks thinking about building in capacity for migrant rights groups? Why aren't people putting their social media energy into that kind of leadership that's much more grassroots, much more frontline? I'm not saying Extinction Rebellion is bad or evil or malicious or the individuals in there. But I think while we have more robust, strong, radical, rooted narratives, why do we keep redeeming that area and trying to reconfigure it? Why aren't we putting more effort towards the margins and um, strengthening it and building that kind of civic agency from those that are most affected. And and I mean, I know I've engaged with Extinction Rebellion. I've engaged with people in there. So it's not for lack of trying. It's not for lack of saying, hey, you need to have a state analysis. Hey, black and brown bodies are already on the front line. We already are vulnerable to the state. And actually to even have this conversation, that's me doing emotional, intellectual and spiritual labor that I could be putting and directing somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, putting it in something else, something I've tried, I try to do is speak to doctors because I, I am aware that people listen to doctors and I believe the more doctors that engage, because like I said from the beginning, my role is mainly about hair pollution. They mm. see the impact of it in their surgeries, in hospitals. Um, but I have said to them, and I'm quite open about it, they need to come out as themselves. They don't need to be part of anything else. I believe they have an extremely powerful voice. Um, doctors are very 
conservative. Um, I don't know whether there are any doctors in, in the room, but they don't like to get involved in all this stuff. But I believe they have a duty on this thing because it's such a public health crisis. I believe that if you see your doctors out marching on the street over this issue, a lot more people will take it seriously. What I don't want to happen is when some people go out marching and I, I sort of hear people ringing up the radio and people switching off their tellies. No, I want more and more and more people to engage in what is going on. This is a public health crisis. And what that means, an emergency, is it is affecting everybody. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, we'll tell you later about our upcoming and free podcast making course so you could be creating one of these next month. During the event, we were lucky enough to hear Jude Orson recite one of his poems. This is a poem, I just called it A Billion Gums. Ingrained into the floor lay flaws of man, or rather human, absconded as insignificant if you can, for daily life demands importance you ran, a system pertained to recycle its plans, hence spitting out gum and swivelling to kick it, carelessly he missed, halting his pivot, waltzing away without shit as no one gives it, until a month later and a cleaner is tasked to pick it. Working their way through the gum's rubbery divot, which peaked above the ground and found a home, amongst many other divots or hills which have grown, and sown in existence as debris unknown, with cigarette butts sweeping or steeping into the ground, bottles rocking and parading the streets aloud, and wrappers dazzling silver inards and vibrant coats proud, with the occasional heaven roaming between binmen's scowls, a recycling bin which grins as something being endowed, as a marker of the holy times of now, where the arid human's heart no longer makes a sound. The limit is that the notion of climate and environmental definition has been narrowed down by people. And it hasn't connected that housing, food, public health, is of those issues Mm -hmm. and I would also want to just bring in that in a lot of our spiritual and cultural traditions that we come from there isn't this separate climate it's not a separate environment it's part of your there's this interdependence like I come I'm I'm Bengali we were an agricultural agrarian economy as part of capitalism that got shamed out we were tried to brought into a, a different type of economic capitalist system so there's so much shame around food and growing food and all these types of things farming was seen as low level as opposed to actually like a way of sustaining yourselves and when you look back at our folk tales when you look back at our songs we have wedding songs about vegetables like that's how deep it is so when our communities don't necessarily use the language of environment and climate it's because so often it's not separate Um, And it's much more embedded. So there is also the work of Mm decolonizing these different ways of knowing and coming to know. Um, There's indigenous elders who we've worked with who never say they're activists. They say they're defenders of the land. They're keepers of the water. So it's a completely different way of knowing and living and being, um, which is in order to reinvigorate that or restore that or appropriately contextualize it, it's going to rely on a deep, deep programming Eurocentric knowledge is not the center. 
I'd like to also say, like, I think there's this thing about, you know, well, people just don't know and people don't understand, and it sort of connects what Fazana was saying and what Rosamond was saying. There is a reason why people do not understand and do not connect this conversation with their daily lives. I mean, mm -hmm. we have spent 15 years looking at the climate crisis through a capitalist lens, and what has, that has meant is that we've focused on consumerism and individualism, and I don't think we've talked about it, but, you know, the, the fight against the climate crisis for the last 10 years has been about plastic bags, veganism, and polar bears, mm -hmm. and those things are not relevant to people's lives because we've looked at it through the means of production. We've looked at it as if we can continue the system that we've got and we'll be fine if we just make minor adjustments and that is the reason why people don't think okay this is what is happening to me and my community and actually this is part of the climate crisis so some of that battle is about narrative and how we look at our economic system which Trust me, even when I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm thinking about an economic system and I don't understand economics, you actually do understand it. It's just the language around it is designed to make the public feel like they don't get it. And when the public feels like they don't understand the economic system that is causing all of the problems that they see around them on a daily basis, it cuts them out of that conversation. So what we really need to start doing is stepping back and looking at that bigger picture. And, of course, that's about education and learning, but it's also about the movement and the decision makers and the people in power and the people in leadership in organisations mm. using that correct narrative and allowing people to connect the dots. Could I just please say, can you all please be part of the conversation? Nobody owns this. I worry that if it's just a few people speaking, then governments can continuously get away with things. I think what they would hate is when I say a whole mass movement, they would really, really be worried about. I think you all know a bit about it. You can all speak out about it. Nobody owns it. I don't own it. I'm just doing my little bit to help. But you know, young people have really, really inspired me how passionate you have been. So when there are days when I don't want to get out of bed, because, you know, that's what grief does to you sometimes, and then you see young people out marching, it really does inspire you to get up and do something. But please, you're all part of it. I, I sort of worry is if government feel that only... 15% of the population cares, then the whole thing's going to continue. I believe every single person has a, a, a right and should be saying something because what is going on is impacting really everybody. Uh, you know, as I said, everybody breathes air. So you absolutely have a right, and you deserve, by the way, everyone in this room, to be breathing clean air. It is your absolute human right. Yeah, thank you. I'm taking away a completely new perspective on climate change. My eyes have been completely opened. What we hear about climate change today only revolves around plastic and reducing consumption and really sustainable ways of living. Um, but the topics discussed cover areas so much wider and so very important that I think merit attention in widespread media. So I'll be looking more into the topics that were discussed today. I guess what I'm taking away from this um, event is that how important it is for young people like me to get involved in the climate crisis. You know, people who are black, people on the margins of society, and people who have things who are affected by this disproportionately. What I'm taking away is I really relate with what Fazana said, and that is the climate movement, climate change movement, cannot be um, 
disassociated or separate from all other movements. It's political just by its nature. And you can't claim to be a climate activist and be racist, um, just like you can't claim to be a feminist and not look into dismantle racism. So if we're really serious, we have to look at it very differently and not in a silo, but really look at all these other issues. So after the event, we caught up with Fazana, Jude, Minnie and Rosamond to share their final thoughts on the discussion. I met this young man called Jude, which I'm definitely inspired by him. Um, he sort of lived where I actually used to live. And for me, as an, I think, can I call myself an ex-teacher? Some people think I, I teach now in what I'm doing anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I, I wanted to hear what is going on with young people and how they feel about the climate. And I want them to be really, really passionate about this topic. It doesn't affect a certain section. There are those that it, it affects more, but I believe they have a very, very powerful voice. And I want to see more action, and that's why I came. And I hope I managed to inspire some people. You definitely did. 100%. I am very inspired. <laughs> Yeah, I found it, like I said earlier, it was like sitting through, like basically a whole first term of university <laughs> on, <laughs> on environmentalism. Yeah, no, obviously, there's, there's modules and yeah, but generally I felt like I learned so much. I think as well, like I come from like the very like nerd policy movementy stuff, and it was really amazing and inspiring to hear the creative response to the climate crisis. Because um, I think that's really important. I think it's so important to have a joyful and creative response to times of extreme distress and crisis, which is what we're in now. This is the first panel that I've been on around climate, where public health was so explicitly connected and I'm so grateful for you doing that work and establishing that because so many times I bumble trying to, to connect that this is a public health issue and usually I approach it, you know, I can talk a bit about pollution or reproductive justice or immune systems and things but you did such an incredible job and I want to share what somebody came up to me and said after the panel um, and she said, you know, I'm a political economics professor um, you know, middle class and she said this panel made her reflect on not just about the privileges that she has but also that you know we were talking a lot about allyship and she was like actually it's not just being an ally it's about getting into a space where others can lead and we didn't talk about that explicitly but I'm glad that she acknowledged that actually there are on this whole panel people leading in very very incredible ways. Do you have any final tips that we're all engaged? In terms of like a creative kind of perspective there was one tip that I wanted to give everyone, but it should be acknowledged that not everyone has access or use of social media, for example. There's one technique that I do um, use when I am researching now, and I learned this from a social media journalist called Taylor Lorenz from the US. She was literally talking about how when she wants to focus on one topic, she would log out of all of her social media accounts, create new ones, and only follow certain accounts. It builds a new type of algorithm mm -hmm. that would literally prompt you towards this interested topic. So I've done that um, in terms of um, technology, in terms of space. I also have like a football account. 
and I also have like a. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We're top of the league. I had to just put it in there, and then um, yeah. So if you was to create an like accounts based around environmentalism, you should be able to get like a full kind of scope of the arguments going on now. But I feel like the second step would be to share these things to your commonplace people that wouldn't have access or wouldn't think to do these things. And once you do share in these spaces, you just would be able to have that much more of a conversation and understanding about it. We hope you found this Violent Nights podcast dissecting the climate crisis as interesting as we did. Hashtag Violent Nights or at South Bank Centre on socials to get involved with the conversation. And if you're between 18 and 25, you can apply for a spot on our free podcast making course. If you love them and want to know how to make one, on this two-day course, you'll learn how to plan, make and share your own podcast by working episodes of Violent Nights alongside us and a couple of pod experts. If that sounds cool, head to South Bank Centre's website or just search South Bank Violet Nights and we should pop up. It's free. Next month, we wrap up International Women's Month with an examination of storytelling by black women curated by media platform Black Ballads. We delve into the importance of black women's storytelling and, in particular, focus on black women's happy endings in storytelling. Please subscribe and write us a review. We'd love to know what you think. This EP was produced by me, Maria Christodoulou. And me, Lucy Russell. And me, Abby Burgess. And me, Will Roberts. And me, Kiana Williams. And me, Shadhal Mohammed. And me, Shamika Ruddock. And I'm Nan Napoleon. And I'm Alex Williams, and we are your hosts. This was mixed by Phil Brown and exec produced by Crystal Genesis. Until next month, bye. See ya.